It's good to be back with y'all today. It's always a, a pleasure to come and be a part of y'all's church and to be a part of your worship. And I want you to know that um, I keep y'all in my prayers faithfully because uh, I do appreciate you as a congregation, and I'm thankful for what God is doing in your lives as well as in through you into this city, into this area. Um, and I thank you for your prayers for RUF and the ways that y'all have encouraged us, helping to do things like provide snacks. God is using your efforts to spread the gospel at NC State. And even later today, I get to baptize a student uh, who is coming in faith to join God's church, and that is a part of what God has done on the campus through y'all's prayers and through the partnership we have to see the gospel go forward at NC State. So give thanks for that. Um, <clears throat> since I'm going to be with you uh, multiple times over the next few months, I thought it prudent to uh, pick a book of the Bible to go through together. So I thought we could do 1 Thessalonians. So every time that I come, we'll kind of keep plugging away in 1 Thessalonians and, and see where we end up. Um, if you are familiar with the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, it's one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. Uh, it happened probably about 15 years after Jesus died. Uh, and Paul was writing to a group of Christians that he had led to faith. We hear about how Paul got to Thessalonica in the book of Acts in chapter 17. Uh, he was traveling with Silas and they, they came to Thessalonica and they went into the synagogue as was their custom. And they began to talk to people about the Messiah. And then ultimately said that this Messiah is the one that we see in Jesus. And they pointed Many to Jesus and some believed that were Jewish and some devout Greeks believed. But then there were also some that did not like the preaching about Jesus that Paul was doing. And so we see in Acts 17 that, that a group of Jews stir up a controversy. They get a crowd together and, and basically run out Paul and Silas. They have to leave in the, the middle of the night to, to kind of save their, their necks. But Paul did not forget them. He kept remembering them in his prayers, holding before God their life and their faith. And we see that, that this letter comes out of that love that Paul has as he writes to them, knowing that they are dealing with the challenges of persecution, like he experienced even at the beginning of the gospel going out in Thessalonica. And he writes this letter to encourage them in their faith, that they would be steadfast in the hope that they have in Christ. And so it's a great letter for us to read as we all need that. We all need encouragement in the midst of our life to stay faithful to the hope that we have in Christ. And so my hope is, is as we reflect on this letter that Paul has written to the church of Thessalonians, that will encourage us in our faith. But we're going to start right at the very beginning. I'm going to read for us the first three verses of Thessalonians chapter 1. This is God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I'm going to pause and pray. I invite you to pray along with me in your hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of being together, that we are together as 
the church, but that we are also together with you. And we pray that you would come in a way that helps us to see and to know you better through these words. For Jesus' sake, amen. <clears throat> so the challenge that my students sometimes have is finding things to do that aren't technological. And so a lot of times what they'll end up doing is coming up with odd questions. Like I had a student come up to me after one of our last large group worships and ask the question, what's the difference between a smoothie and a milkshake? And they had spent like 10 minutes kind of analyzing what is a milkshake, what is a smoothie, and, and where does that line cross? Before that, they really spent about a year and a half trying to nail down the question of what is a sandwich? which you think is kind of self-evident, don't you? I mean, a sandwich is just meat and bread, but that would be a hot dog. And the Hot Dog Council of America is very clear, thanks, is very clear that they are not a sandwich. They deny their sandwichness, even though they're meat and bread. And you think this is kind of a silly question, what is a sandwich, but it actually has important ramifications. There was a court case about this question in the state of Massachusetts. There was a shopping center that had a Panera, and when Panera went in, they signed a lease that said, we will be the only sandwich shop allowed in the shopping center. But a year later, Cadoba came in, the burrito company. And Panera was like, no, they can't come in because that's a sandwich. Cadoba and the shopping center disagreed, but they went to trial, and a judge had to decide, is a burrito a sandwich? He said, no, it's not a sandwich. And so Cadoba was allowed to move in. But if you go across to New York, there a burrito has been determined by the state legislature to be a sandwich. New York disagrees with Massachusetts. And this has important ramifications in New York because the way that they tax things is based on whether it's a sandwich or not. So for instance, if you go into a bakery and you order a bagel, you pay the baked good price, which is pretty cheap. But if they cut that bagel, and put butter on it or cream cheese. The state of New York says that makes it a sandwich because anything with grain that has something in the middle is a sandwich. And so you have to pay a higher price for that, that bagel just because it's cut and has a little bit of butter. And so everything to the state of New York that has grain and something in between is a sandwich, except for a stromboli. They carve that out. That's the power of the pizza industry right there. Stromboli is not a sandwich to the state of New York. And this seems silly, right? But it kind of reflects like when you really begin to push into something, it's kind of hard to define. And for us, sometimes that can happen in the phrase Christianity. What is it to be a Christian? We all can kind of assume we have some idea of what a Christian is, but, but if you really push into it, what is a Christian? What makes a Christian? This is a great question to ask yourself, to ask your children, to ask your neighbors. What is a Christian? And I imagine it's kind of like a sandwich. You might find different answers as to what makes a sandwich, different lines that people will draw between what a Christian is and what a Christian is not. And it's an important question to reflect on in our own lives, especially like if you're here and you're not a Christian. You're thinking about, do I want to become a Christian? What is it that you are trying to become? Or perhaps you're here and you're like, I'm kind of done with Christianity. I'm wanting to walk away with, from this. But what is it that you are rejecting? What is it that you are walking away from? 
And what I think that Paul does for us in this passage, as he speaks to these Thessalonians, as he speaks to these people that have become Christians, is he begins to, right from the beginning of the letter, help us to understand what is a Christian. That a Christian is ultimately someone who sees the signs of God's life in their life. A Christian is ultimately someone that sees the signs of God's life in their life. And Paul wants us to see this right from the beginning when he says, when we give thanks to God always for all of you. And by doing that, what Paul does is he's saying that, that what makes you a Christian is what God has done in you. He's not thanking them for their, their embracing his teachings. He's not thanking them for the way that they agreed with his opinion. He's thanking God for what God has done in their life. I had a, a friend who told me this story about growing up, how his mom would make pudding, and everybody loved her pudding. And this wasn't like the, the pudding in the box, which is the only way I know to make pudding. This is like stovetop pudding. And it was really good, and she would make it, and then she would put it in the refrigerator to let it congeal and cool. And one time, it was sitting there, tantalizing, tempting. And one of his siblings went into that refrigerator and took their finger and went whoop and snuck a taste. Now the mom comes to pull it out, to, to put it out on the, the dinner table, and she sees that gap. She sees that canyon that's been put into her pudding. And this is what she does. She pulls out a ruler, and she measures her children's fingers, and then she measures that canyon, and she finds the guilty party. In a sense, this is what Paul is doing to the Thessalonians. He is looking and saying, I see God's finger in your life. I see the way that God is working in you. I see evidence of his life in your life. And that causes me to give thanks because I know that it is him who is at work in you. And I see signs of his life coming into your life. And that gives me confidence that you are Christians, that God's fingerprints are all over your life. But how does he see these fingerprints of God? He sees it in the ways that God is working in their gaps. My son had a, a bent finger and we had to take him to the, to the x-ray tech to see what was going on. And, and after the x-ray, we went to the doctor and the doctor said, do you see all these gaps in your son's hand? And I thought, well, that's a problem. Gaps in his hand? What, what's going on? He said, no, 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 those gaps are good. Those are the growth areas that still exist in your son. He's still got more growing to do. What God does oftentimes in our life is he shows that he's working by bringing his life into those areas of gaps, growth in us. And so Paul sketches out what that looks like in the life of a believer in verse 3 when he says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here is starting this book with these three things, these three things that are often connected to Christianity, these three things that are sometimes referred to as the cardinal virtues, or the, the primary, the foundational signs of God's life in someone's life, faith, hope, and love. And these three things are often mentioned together in the, the New Testament as a description of what it looks like for God's life to be present in the life of a human. 
In part, it's because these three things are not natural to us. These three things are, in a sense, absent from a normal person. There are gaps that exist in our natural life. But God comes and brings his life into our life. And out of our life, we begin to see these three things come. Faith, hope, and love. But these things, again, are are gaps that exist in us. These things are not natural. And you even see this in the way that Paul uses faith, hope, and love in some of his other letters. You see this in the book of 1 Corinthians, where there was a community that lacked an understanding and lacked the ability to really bring out God's love so that they were loving in ways that did not reflect God. And in that book, what is the the most well-known chapter? 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul is teaching them what God's love looks like because they did not have that kind of love as an evidence, as a fruit in their life. And so he says, come and see what that love looks like. It's a gap that I'm seeing in your community. It's a gap that I'm seeing in your life. See this and look for this sign to know that God is alive in you. Or if you go to the book of Galatians, the people in Galatia were struggling with with a message that said, you have to do more in order to know that God has saved you. They're struggling with the law and its role in the life of a believer and pride based on what they did. And what does Paul come to them and say is the thing that they needed to see? Faith a faith that rested on what God did in their life. Not what they did, but what God did. Paul is saying that that this is a gap that's in your life, that you need to see God grow his life so that you are not trusting in your flesh, but in him to bring faith into you. And here in this book of Thessalonians, it's interesting that, that Paul ends that list of those three things, faith, hope, and love, not with love, not with faith, but hope. And he's doing this because Paul, as he writes every letter, is writing to real people. These aren't theological treatises. These, These are actual letters to real people where he's looking and seeing where is the gap? Where is the area where God's life needs to come out more in these people that I love? And as he writes the book of Thessalonians, he sees that there's this need, there's this deficit, there's this gap of hope. And so he's writing this letter to to bring them to a greater place of hope that, that removes the anxiety that they felt, that removes the fear that they felt, wondering, is God working in us when we see persecution happening? Is God working in this world when it seems like things are coming against us? They lacked hope. Is this the way that things always will be? Or will we one day see Jesus come into this world? They lacked hope. And Paul wants them to see the sign of God's life in them by pointing them to the hope that only he can bring. And so Paul writes this letter to point them towards the hope that they can have in God. And this is helpful for us to reflect on as we reflect upon our own faith. Where is it that we see in our own hearts, in our own lives, the gaps that may exist? Do we see it in our faith? What is faith? Faith that that warm trust in God, in his presence in our life. It's something that we should see come out in our life. So Paul talks about faith in a particular way in this passage, doesn't he? He calls it your work of faith. 
And it's important to pull back and say that that's not saying that, that this is something that we do that gets God's love, that, that faith is something that is of our own. No faith is described as a gift. But when he says a work of faith, he's saying that, that there is a sign that should be present in our life that shows us that our faith is working out into our life. That there's a sign of God's life coming into our life that's seen in the way that we move in this world differently. That we move in this world in a way that reflects a different presupposition, a different foundation. That our life is not built on what we see or what we feel, but on what God has said. A work of faith is a way that you move in this world that cuts across the grain of this world. And the way that others would live normally. It leads you in a different direction than others. It's like Abraham the great father of faith, who left his home to to go to a random place. Why? Because God called him that way. It's like Paul, who was following Jesus into dangerous and costly places. It's what we see even in our world today. Work of faith is seen in the way that there's Christians in China or the Middle East that follow Jesus at the cost of their own lives following Jesus into suffering. That's what faith looks like. Going against the grain of the world, going in ways that are not normal, going in ways that reflects that you are following God and not your heart, following God's voice and not your own voice, the voice of this world. And so that means that our life should be able to see as a part of sign of God's work something different. Do you see the signs of God's work in your life and the way that you live differently? What does it look like to see a work of faith, the faith that God gives to you working out into your life? Do you see this in your career path, that you're choosing less money to have more time to be a part of what God is doing in this church? Do you see it in the way that that perhaps in your career you chose a different path that was perhaps less profitable because you didn't want to do something that was working against his purposes and building his kingdom? You see, the the work of faith is, is us not doing what we would normally do, what others might expect, but going a different direction, going after God, following after him, because we see that God is real, God is alive, that God is with us and his truth matters more than what we see. And Paul wants them to stop and to to see coming out in their life a different way of living that reflects that God is real and alive and has spoken and so they follow after him. And then Paul also speaks about a labor of love. Here again is another sign of life that he's pointing to, a sign that, that God's life is present in their life. And the word here that he uses for love in the Greek is agape. And agape was a a word in Greek that was hardly used until the New Testament. And the, the authors of the New Testament and Christians began to take this word and use it as a way to describe a God-like love. A love that's different than what they saw in the culture, a difference than romance, a difference than familial love, a different kind of love than friendship love, a God-like love. 
And Paul here is, is bringing that God-like love out to them and saying, do you see this coming out in your life? And that's why he talks about this love, but he says a labor of love. And just like a work of faith, Paul's saying that this is a sign that God's love is with you if that's coming out in what you do. And that phrase labor is a very interesting one because it's not just the idea of working, but a working to weariness, a working to exhaustion, which some of you know very well when you were in labor with a child. It wasn't like you were just going to work that day, right? You were laboring to exhaustion, laboring to weariness, laboring almost to the point of what felt like death. That's the idea that Paul is holding out with a labor of love. And he's saying that that's what love looks like when it is unnatural, when it's God-given, when it is a sign that God's work, God's life is in your life, that you are laboring in a loving way to weariness. Why would that be a God-like love? Because that's what we see him do for us. That's the way that we understand what his love is like. How has his love been made manifest to us? That Christ came to die for us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. God didn't just love us with a feeling or with good intentions, but he loved us to the point of his exhaustion, to the point of weariness, to the point of his own death. And that's a love that doesn't come naturally. That's a love that shows that God is alive in you. And that's a love that we hope to see growing out of our life, which is seen in us sometimes continuing to forgive and love even our enemies, even our enemies who sometimes are sleeping in the same bed with us or right down the hall our enemies at work, our enemies in this culture, that we are loving them, faithfully praying for them, faithfully serving them, despite the way that they may treat us or act towards us, because it's not a love that is natural. It is a love that is God-given, that's flowing out into our life. Paul sees these signs of faith and love in the life of the Thessalonians. He sees the way that they are giving sacrificially. He sees the ways that they're holding fast to their faith despite first persecution. And he gives thanks for that. He says, that's God's fingerprints. And we too, when we see us loving in a way that, that surprises us, should give thanks. When we see the fact that, that we are still following Christ despite the hardships and persecutions and sufferings that we've gone through, we should stop and give thanks. And what this thanks does is it reminds us and it roots us in the fact that our faith, our love, is not rooted in us, but is rooted in Him. And that's why Paul finishes, in a sense, with talking about hope and a steadfastness of hope. Because this hope is, in a sense, the center of our Christian life, that, that our Christian life is not dependent on us, but dependent upon Him. And this kind of hope is something that we sometimes don't understand in our culture because when we think about hope, we think about how you may hope to win the lottery. You might hope to, to get a big bonus at the end of the year. You might hope to get a good tax return. You don't know if it'll happen, but you think, boy, it'd be great if it did. But the way that Paul thinks about hope, the way that the New Testament thinks about hope is more like Christmas. 
Christmas, 14 days away. And Christmas is coming whether or not you're ready, right? <laughs> you can't wait another week for Christmas because you haven't gotten all the presents. Christmas is coming no matter what you do. It's 14 days away. And that's the kind of hope that Paul has in mind. A hope that is certain. A hope that is sure. And that's why he talks about hope in an interesting way. He calls it a steadfastness of hope. You see, when we have that confidence, that surety, that, that it's not about me bringing this reality into my life. It's not about me making this reality come into this world, but it's about what God is doing, that that gives us a steadfastness in this world. And that picture of steadfastness is the picture of, of, of a boat in an ocean in the midst of, of waves kind of moving it up and down, but there's an anchor that has grounded it and holds it in its place. Paul talks about a steadfastness of hope that should be a sign of God's life, a sign of God's life in his people a sign of God's life in you. But what is the thing that we can all taste in our culture right now? What is it that, that sociologists and psychologists say is an increasingly rampant problem in our culture, a rampant problem in our children? Anxiety. I see it. I see it all the time. My students are more and more anxious. Why are they anxious? It's because they don't have that anchor of hope. They live in a world that is all about the present. They live in a world that, that is all about the current moment. You see it in, in the way that, that trends change like that. What is cool is no longer cool. You see in politics that, that what is expedient in the present moment takes precedence over what was helpful in the past. You see it in what is true, that, that truth seems to shift and change upon what is most helpful for people. Everything is, is so moment by moment that it creates a sense of, sense of anxiety because no one knows what tomorrow will bring. And so the phrase that so often we hear captures that with, it is what it is. Now, all that matters is this present moment. But what that does for us is that creates anxiety. Because no one knows the future. And no one feels like they can manage it and control it. And so they're just tossed about in the waves of the circumstances and powers of this world. But Paul says that Christianity should be a place that sticks out in this culture. as a place where there is a steadfastness of hope. That we should not be a group of anxious people, but a people that are marked by steadfastness. And we often see this outworking of, of anxiety in our, in our busyness. We're more and more busy as people. Why? Because we think that more and more our life, our world is dependent upon us. But that, that busyness is ultimately despair. That it's up to me to manage my life. It's up to me to manage this world. It's up to me to make what I want to happen, happen. And the more that that's preached into us by the culture, the more that we feel anxious and fearful. One author says it this way. 
Our busyness is a refusal of hope because it is functionally a refusal of trust, a refusal of dependence. For when I'm frantically busy, I subtly and not so subtly am assuming that everything depends on me, as if I'm the one upholding the cosmos, as if the rival of the kingdom depends on me. But Christians sing Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, because we are not a panicked people. We are not a panicked people. Why? Because we don't say it is what it is, but we say, come Lord Jesus. We don't live in this world with a wondering about tomorrow, but we live with a steadfastness of hope. Why? Because we say, come Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul wants these Thessalonians to have is that steadfastness of hope that is grounded in their faith that says that the Jesus that they know, the Jesus whose love they've seen is going to come. And so that colors everything about their life, that they can live in the midst of the challenges and the persecution and not be moved because what holds them fast is the confidence that Jesus will come. And this is why Paul gives thanks to God, because God gives them that hope. God gives them that confidence. You know, that's what we need for our anxiety is God to work into us, a steadfastness of hope that our life does not depend on us, but on him. There's a beautiful picture of this that all of us know so well. When Martha is scurrying around in the kitchen trying to do things, what does Jesus say? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Doesn't that capture our world? Anxious and troubled about many things? But what does he say? One thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion. What is that one thing? It's Jesus. It's sitting at his feet. That's what we need. Not to dwell upon all that needs to be done in this world, not to dwell upon all the problems of this world, but to see that there is one thing that is necessary for this world, for our children, for our marriage, for ourselves. There's one thing that is necessary. Jesus. And so we cry into our own life, into our present moment, into our future. Come, Lord Jesus. And this is a sense what Paul does at the end of this passage. Remembering before God, our Father, your work of faith and labor and love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. These virtues are things that he wants us to see don't flow out of us. They're not created by us. They are the things that Jesus brings into our life, brings into the gaps that exist in us. And isn't it beautiful the way that Paul frames this? He starts by giving thanks to God who is doing this work in their life. And then he finishes by pointing back to how this is not what they do, 
but is what Jesus has done. So he's framing this whole section by reminding the Thessalonians that this is the work of the Trinity. This is the work of God bringing his life into their life. Their hope, their love, their faith are not from them, but from him. And this is how these things come out in our life, not by us looking inward and saying, all right, Chuck, stop being anxious and start hoping. You got to love more. You got to believe more. But the way that these things grow in our life is by us doing what Mary did. Say that one thing is necessary for me to sit at the feet of Jesus. And so we look to Jesus and we see Jesus as a beautiful picture to us of faith. And the way that when he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil in the desert, in the midst of all the ways that the devil tried to play upon his needs and the gaps that he was feeling in his physical life, that over and over again he responded out of faith and said no to the devil and instead listened to God in his word. We see this in his love that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were giving him nothing but trouble, he comes and he gives his life for us, his love for us. He labors to bring us to life, even at the cost of his own life. And we see this even in his hope that this hope led him to a certain death. That in the garden, he knew what he was going to. He felt anxiety. His soul was troubled. But what kept him moving forward was a steadfastness of hope that he knew that God could bring him through death and into life. Jesus had faith and hope and love that is grounded in his love for God. And as we see that and the beauty of that, it brings out in us those same things. As we reflect upon him, and grow in our love for him, his life grows into us. Taylor Swift, the great philosopher of the day, in her song, Daylight, the very last line says this, in the end, I just think that you are what you love. She's right. In the end, you are what you love. And as you come to sit at the feet of Jesus, and you see the beauty and the glory of him, you become like him. And faith and hope and love grow out of you. And that is what a Christian is. The one who, out of love for Jesus, brings their life to him and finds that in that process, his life comes out into theirs. And they see the signs of that bursting out in their faith in their love, and in their hope. And the beautiful thing is, is that's not something that you have to do to get. But even the fact that you are here today is a reminder that God is bringing that into your life. You are here because Jesus loves you and wants you to know his life, wants you to know his love, and wants you to have the steadfastness of hope that anchors your soul as you remember that Jesus has come and Jesus will come again. Let's pray. Our God and our Savior, we thank you for the faithfulness of Christ. And we thank you for his labor of love 
on our behalf. And we thank you for the hope that he has in you and the hope that he is for us. And we pray that you would allow his life to burst out of ours more and more by helping us to look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.